open up to the Gospel of John. Let's maybe just take a moment in our hearts and thank the Lord for Pastor Will. He is a, a young pastor and a growing pastor, I guess as we all are in some sense, but he's a good pastor. I just felt so shepherded and ministered to as, as I was talking to God just now, as, as, as I was being led along in my conversation with the Lord by Will. What an exemplary prayer. We're going to be in John chapter 12. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, that's on page 898. If you don't have a Bible, you're certainly welcome to take that Bible home with you. If you're new to reading the Bible, the chapter numbers are the large numbers and the verse numbers are the small numbers. <clears throat> We've been in John's Gospel for quite a while now, and one of the things that I think you've probably noticed is that the Gospel of John is a Gospel of contrasts, light, dark, belief, unbelief, dead in sin, born again by the Spirit, contrast, 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 all the way down, and then it seems like the, the contrast becomes personified in this morning's text as we for the second time, encounter Mary and Judas. Now you'll remember, of course, that this is our second sermon in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12. In our first sermon, we focused primarily on Mary. We saw how Mary's anointing of Jesus was an act of risky, radical, sacrificial worship. Right? Just a, a quick little review. It was risky because the dinner party was being held near Jerusalem at a time when all the authorities were seeking to kill Jesus. But Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave and they said, you know what, we're going to get together and we're going to recognize the glory of Christ and His power. It was a radical act of worship because when Mary put the nard on Jesus, the expensive perfume, she broke the container. There was no going back. She was all in on this extravagant worship of Jesus. And it was sacrificial because well, what she gave up was basically the equivalent of a year's salary. If you don't think that that's sacrificial, I just encourage you to, maybe when we pass the offering plates around later, just ante up a little bit and see how that feels. It was also sacrificial in the sense that Mary sacrificed her glory, her feminine glory. She took her hair down and used the crown of womanhood to wash Jesus's feet. And last week's sermon, I mean, I don't know how it felt to you, but to me, it just felt like we, we got a chance to pull up a chair to this dinner party with Jesus, and it was full of life and light and joy and worship. That was all in verses 1 through 3. And this morning, we come to verse 4. And in verse 4, Judas makes his ominous appearance. He shows up objecting to Mary's risky, radical, sacrificial act of worship. And when he does, he poisons the whole affair. One commentator says it like this, as Mary's perfume fills the house with its fragrance, the poison of Judas's words contaminate the air. 
Well, let's, let's read about this for ourselves, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. I'll read aloud. Follow along with me. Six days before the Passover. <coughs> this is significant. Pay attention. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner party for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, in fact, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have you here present with us now, powerfully in your word. As your spirit lives in us and moves among us, oh God, we are desperate for you this morning. What every single person in this room needs this morning, God, is more of you. Some of us have you and know you, but we've grown cold to you. We feel distant from you. We have set ourselves up at odds against you. And some of us here this morning don't know you at all. And we are painfully unaware of how desperately we need your Son, Jesus Christ. But that can change in an instant. And we pray that it does. Amen. So, uh, as we begin, man, it's going to be a long day if I cry in the opening prayer. Here we go. Now, before we begin to talk about Judas and his sins, uh, we need to say something about the way that we should listen to this sermon. As you listen to this sermon, Christian, you may be tempted to identify more with Mary than Judas. Judas, in your mind, is the arch-villain. He's like Mao or Pol Pot, Hitler or Stalin. He is the worst of the worst, the most fiendish guy in the Bible, the real bad guy. He betrayed Jesus. So as you listen, you may be tempted to think, well, obviously, you know, this contrast between Mary and Judas, I'm the Mary here. I'm not Judas. Well, friends, that's, that's not really the best way to read your Bibles. And it's not really the best way to listen to a sermon about the Bible. When you read, really anywhere in the Bible, but especially this story, you should aspire to be like the heroes, like Mary, 
risky, radical, sacrificial worship. But you should understand that you're probably more like the villain, like Judas. So as we read about Judas this morning and we shift our focus from Mary to Judas and we consider his terrible sins, we should have a a, a prayerful spirit. We should be asking God to show us, to graciously reveal to us, to sanctify us by helping us to see the ways in which we may be more like Judas than we know. John Newton once asked this question. I think it's very useful here. He says, how can we speak properly on the deceitfulness of the heart if we do not feel the deceitfulness of our own? So listen, members of this church, to this sermon with a a healthy recognition of the deceitfulness of sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you've walked into this thinking, I, I know who I am, Sean, thank you very much, well then you've sort of misunderstood yourself entirely, at least according to what God's Word says about our own ability to understand ourselves. So with that in mind, now let's jump into the text. As we've seen, Judas is objecting to Mary's anointing of Jesus. Now, there are two questions that a careful reader of the story should ask right as you jump into the story. The first question is, what is it that Judas is objecting to? Now, at first glance, it seems like Judas is objecting to a waste of resources. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment? not sold for 300 denarii, and given to the poor. And of course, we know because we learned last week that this anointing was not a waste. It's only a waste if you don't have eyes to see what worship looks like, if you don't understand the eternal value of worship. Judas thinks, okay, you're making him smell good, and uh, that's great, I guess. I guess that's a nice thing you did for Jesus, but... Couldn't we have done something better with this money? Now, the second question we need to ask here is, why did Judas object to this act of worship? And we've kind of already gotten at it a little bit, right? We have his stated reason, and then there's the real reason. Uh, Judas's stated reason for his objection is that something better could have been done with these resources, right? Something more pious. Judas, man, he really hits the nail on the head here with his pious reasoning. He says... We could have helped the poor. We could have helped the poor. Look at verse 5. No, we already looked at verse 5. But then John, the narrator, comes along in verse 6 and tells us the real reason why Judas objects. Look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Think about it. You could have sold that perfume for 300 denarii, whatever your salary is. Let's just take, I I want to say an average salary. I don't know what average is in this room. Let's say between 40 and $80,000. You kind of plug in your own numbers there. And you take that and you, you get that money from selling something and you put it in the money bag. Judas is going to get his piece of that. Oh man, that would have been a big payday for Judas. And he says, John comes along and tells us that Judas really, he's mad because he's not getting to pinch 
from the sack. And what we learn here, friends, is that Judas doesn't care about people. He cares about money. Judas doesn't care about the poor. He cares about himself. But here's the thing. He couches his selfish, greedy argument in the language and reasoning of piety. And there is some pretty immediate application for our lives here. Friends, we would do well to remember that every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes along claiming to care for the poor, to be an advocate for the poor, is not actually a good faith actor. We would do well to remember that. In this morning's text, what we see is that Judas, in his unrighteousness, weaponizes the poor. He takes the poor and uses them for his own selfish gain. And what I want us to understand this morning is that this is still happening today. It will always happen. As long as there are poor people, there will be people trying to use poor people for their own selfish gains. The poor, the weak, the marginalized are very often nothing more than tools for people's own selfish agendas. This is especially true in our current cultural moment where the more of a victim you are, the more cultural capital you can have. Therefore, the more you claim to be a helper of victims, the helper of the poor, the helper of the oppressed, the more cultural capital you can acquire. You can gain more political power, you can gain more cultural clout, you can even gain more cold, hard cash by looking like you care about the poor more than anyone else does. We would do well as Christians to think soberly, soberly about the world in which we live. Do you think a politician is ever going to just come out and say, you know, listen, Paul, I don't know how politicians' hands, right? Listen, at the end of the day, I don't really care about poor people, you know? But I think that if I champion them to you, then I'll get this voter block, and that will help me achieve what I really want in this life, which is more wealth and power. That's never going to happen. A politician will never do that. The closest we came to someone who would just burn the house down was Trump, and he didn't even get close to doing something like that. Now, this is true in every other area. A pro-choice organization won't get very far by saying, you know, listen, really what, what we care about is ideology, and we just want to use at-risk black women as a token for our ideology. They're just never going to say that. It would be suicide for them and their mission. The world doesn't work like that. No one ever admits to being a bad faith actor, and yet we would be foolish to believe that every politician, every socially conscious business. Are you paying attention? These businesses that act like they care about all these issues, do you think that they really do? Some of them probably do. Most of them are just like, I'm going to go wherever the money leads me. And right now it pays for me to claim that I care about X, Y, and Z. We would be foolish to think that every nonprofit organization, every pastor, every denominational head, every Twitter activist is a good faith actor. Friends, listen, when you're trying to promote your own agenda, your own selfish 
carnal agenda, you absolutely must couch your propositions in language and ideas that are agreeable to the masses. Your ethos has to be something that when the world hears it, they go, oh, I'm on board with that. So Judas comes along and he goes, what about the poor? Oh, we could have helped the poor. Why? Because no one wants to be seen as being against the poor, right? The abortion industry screams about women's rights because no one wants to be seen as being anti-woman, The LGBT lobby couches its claims in the language of love because no one wants to be seen as being against love. Warmongering politicians speak in very patriotic terms because up until like five minutes ago, no one really wanted to be seen as being anti-American. I really want to make this war happen, so what I have to do is make it seem like if you oppose it, you're not really American. When pharisaical Christians want to protect their own legalism, their own tiny kingdom that they have built up, they will make sure and couch their arguments, especially, listen now, in conservative circles like ours, in the language of holiness and faithful to God and Scripture, even as they subvert all of those things. Now, this last example, Christians in the church using the poor as tokens, this is an example that's really important because I don't want you to walk away from this sermon thinking in purely political terms about what we're discussing here. This dynamic is being pulled from the Bible. It's it's coming from Jesus and His relationship with His disciples. I didn't get this from a a presidential biography. This is going to happen in the church. So let's pause a moment and just think a little bit more about who Jesus, uh, excuse me, who Judas is in this part of the story. In verse 4, John refers to Judas like this. He says, he who was about to betray Jesus. John is writing this after the fact after he had already seen Judas's betrayal of Jesus. In the moment, no one knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus. In the moment, no one knew, except for Jesus, of course, but Jesus wasn't tipping his hand. No one knew that Judas was stealing money from the money bag. Everyone there thought that Judas was a faithful disciple of Jesus. And here's how you can know that they thought this about him. This isn't just speculation. The text tells us that he was the keeper of the money bag. You don't just let anybody keep the money bag. The money bag is a big deal. It's really important. You mess around and put somebody who doesn't have integrity on the money bag, you're going to pay the price. I have a pastor friend. He's a good brother, faithful, was a little naive, appointed someone to be a treasurer in their church, didn't know them super well. The treasurer, over the course of 10 years, stole $150,000. Now listen, it could have happened to him if he was perfectly discerning. Jesus appointed Judas Judas to be the keeper of the money bag, and he knew exactly what he was doing. But my point is, in the minds of the other disciples, Judas was the most trusted disciple, or at least one of the most trusted disciples. Friends, you have to know 
that there are some people, even in the church, that you may trust because they seem trustworthy, who are, in fact, deceivers. There are teachers who will turn into heretics. They may not have revealed themselves to be that way now, but in due time, we will see. There are some who, like Judas, are the heads of denominations that will lead those denominations astray. If you fear that that may be happening in some denomination that you're paying attention to, pray for them. There are some pastors who will disqualify themselves from the ministry. And as I wrote this this week, the very first thing I thought was, God, may it please not be me. Protect me. Keep me. If I'm in any way like a Judas, show me now so I can repent and come to the light so that this does not happen to me and so that I do not hurt the church. Now listen, I'm not trying to turn us all into cynics. But you better believe that there are some in the church who only say pious things for their own carnal purposes. There are some even in the church who only claim to care about the marginalized and the oppressed who do so because it fits their satanic schemes. There are men and women who only champion the truthfulness and sufficiency of Scripture because to do so keeps them exactly where they need to be to fleece the flock of God. Judas knew that identifying with the poor would give his argument the moral high ground even though he himself was morally bankrupt. There are some people who will champion the inerrancy of Scripture even though they themselves don't believe a word of the Bible. There are some in the church who will go to war for the sanctity of life in biblical marriage who will then turn around and get a woman pregnant out of wedlock and force her to go have an abortion. The world that we live in is full of people who act like this and it will make its way into the church. Now let me say this again. It's really important. My aim in this portion of the sermon is not to turn everyone in this room into cynics. All, always skeptical. The church is always dangerous, always bad, always seeking to harm us. No, that's not the truth. <laughs> that's not the truth. The church is good. I was thinking about it this week, man. The church is so good. Every time I go and I dip my foot into the world and I spend time in like what the best of the best that the world has to offer as far as community goes, I'm just so thankful to God that I get to come back home and be with you, my people, imperfect though we may be. I don't want us to be cynics I want us to have an abundance of charity and trust and hopefulness. I want us to assume the, the best about others and the worst of ourselves. And yet, and yet, I do not want us to be utterly naive. This account is recorded for us in Scripture so that our loving charity on the one hand might be matched with loving discernment on the other hand, so that we can be maximally useful for the service of Christ. When Ant was here last week, the whole crowd was going crazy. Yes and amen. amen. There you go. I knew it wouldn't last. I'm going to tell him. I, didn't get, I got one amen this morning. Now let's address something else here. It's not immediately obvious, but I think you're going to see why it's important. Let's address the group dynamic. The group dynamic. 
Friends, you need to know that in order to accomplish a wicked agenda, you really have to get people on your side. You got to rally the troops. You got to garner public opinion. You got to win the hearts and minds. And that's exactly what Judas does in this story. But in order to see that, you're going to need to see Mark's version where he, he gives us a little more detail. So turn with me over to Mark 14. Just save your place in John. Flip over a few pages back to the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark. Mark 14. Starting in verse 4. Verse 4 tells us some of those present were saying indignantly to one another. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. So it seems like, according to Mark's account of this event, that it's not just Judas, but the whole dinner party, or at least some of those who were present, a good contingent of them, who are turning against Mary and her offering of worship. Now, Here's what probably happened here. What probably happened is that Judas, like Satan, planted the seed of discord among those present at the dinner. I can just see it now. Judas comes along, probably didn't say it too loud, probably picked just the right one or two people out, the most influential ones, the ones that would help him serve his purposes, right? He goes along and he just goes, oh, wow such a waste, you know? I mean, I mean, I guess that's good for Jesus. Now he smells good, but I think that thing was worth like 300 denarii. You know what we could do with 300? You know how many poor people? I just passed, like when I, when I came in here on the way to Bethesda, when, I, when we came down, through, I, we saw so many poor people. Just think about how many poor people we could have served with that. Oh man, I just don't know. And then maybe some of the other people present go, yeah, yeah, I didn't, even, I didn't think about that. That's, that's actually a really good point. Yeah, I love poor people. Brothers and sisters, you should beware of those who would come and whisper in your ear like Judas. Be on guard against those who would only use you for their own wicked agenda, who come apparently in true piety, but who, as a matter of fact, only want to use you to sow discord among the people of God. This dinner party is a gathering of people who have been rocked by the glory of Christ, and they want to respond to that glory in worship. It's like a little mini church service. And here comes Satan, working through Judas to disrupt the true worship of God. The risky the radical, the sacrificial. Isn't there something more practical we could have done with that money? Beware. Do not be the church member who is enjoying the fellowship of the saints and the sweet communion of Jesus when a Judas comes along and starts whispering in your ear. 
listen, you know, you know I, I love Sean and the elders, but I, I just don't know about that, that budget decision that they made. It just, it just seems super unwise to me. Well, yeah, you, friends, listen, you can disagree. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but the way that you disagree matters. Think about those who were present. Think about how they could have responded to Judas. I mean, they could have just shut it down immediately, which is what I hope anyone in this church does if someone comes along whispering in your ear. It's super easy to do, right? It's super easy. Somebody comes along and they, they start just chattering in your ear and you just go, oh, that's, man, maybe you're right. You should go talk to Sean about that. Super easy. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know if the elders were right about that. You should go talk to them about it. I'm sure that they would love to speak to you. Here, they could have just said in their hearts, as soon as Judas said this, they could have said, well, I just saw this guy raise Lazarus from the dead. He was dead four days. I remember it, four days, dead in the grave. Everyone was crying, weeping, big funeral. He was dead, dead. Now he's alive. He's sitting here at the table with us. I think if this guy has a problem with this kind of worship, he'll probably address it. He knows what he's doing. Or if, if Judas really made some sense to them and, and they were truly bothered, truly concerned, they could have gone to Jesus later in private and asked him about it. Jesus, hey man, can we talk? I'm a little confused. Um, yeah, you seem perfectly content to let her pour all that perfume on you and I, I don't know, I, I was just thinking like we could have done so much good with that. Can you just... Listen, I, I know that I'm nothing and you're everything, so could you just help me understand how you arrived at, at this decision? Because it doesn't make sense to me right now. We've had members of our church do that with us. I love it when that happens. I love it for a couple of different reasons. One, it means we're not a cult, <laughs> right? Number two, it means that you trust the leadership of this church enough to come and address your grievances and concerns, complaints, doubts, whatever they may be, and three, it gives me a chance to consider, because I'm not Jesus, right? In this story, I'm not Jesus. I, I don't make the right decisions. The other elders don't always make the right decisions. And that gives us a chance to consider ways that maybe we need to improve in the way that we shepherd the flock. None of that's in my notes, so I'm just going to move on from that. In the same way, no, move on from that too. In verse 7, flip back over to John John chapter 12. In verse 7, Jesus stands up and defends Mary. And when he does, we see that this faux piety, this faux righteousness from the dinner crowd, it earns them a swift rebuke from Jesus. Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The dinner, the dinner party crowd here kind of reminds me of Job's friends. You guys remember Job's friends? They falsely think that they're standing up for piety and righteousness when in reality they're speaking out of an abundance of ignorance. So here's my application for you. Don't be like them. Don't be like Job's friends. Don't be like the people at this dinner party don't put yourself in a place unnecessarily where Jesus has to rise up and rebuke you. 
because you jumped on some moral high horse bandwagon without thinking twice about it. The Bible tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak for a reason. I fear that if many of us were in that room at that dinner party, we, we probably would have joined in with the mob and began to attack Mary. Wait a second now. Okay, who's not loving the poor? Right? I don't need any evidence. It's kind of what's happening in our society today. If anybody says anything about certain subjects, we don't waste any time. We don't try to consider the matter. We don't collect any evidence. We just say, I've heard something that I think sounds scandalous, and now I have to stand up and virtue signal. But friends, doing that can put you in a place where you think that you are on team Jesus when in fact Jesus will stand up and oppose you in front of everyone. And then Jesus does something really unexpected after he, he defends Mary. Uh, well, I say what he does is unexpected because if I were Jesus, I wouldn't have done what he did here. Jesus stands up and he gives the rationale for why what Mary did was okay. He doesn't even address Judas at all. That blows my mind. You know, he, he, he knows what's happening with, Jews, uh, with Judas. All throughout John's gospel, we know that Jesus sees into people's hearts. He is painfully aware of what is happening with Judas. He knows about the theft, the greed. And if I was in, if I was in Jesus' shoes, I would have rebuked him. I would have been like, hey, Judas, buddy, calm down. We're having a good time. They're trying to worship me. And here you are, being a hypocrite. You're talking about what we could have done with that money, Judas? You steal money all the time, money that could be used to serve people, and you steal it. So why don't you just sit down and shut up? That's what I would have said to Judas. But Jesus doesn't say that. Why? He says, no, leave her alone. Listen, you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Now, why does Jesus respond? I mean, this is fascinating. Why does Jesus respond like this? I think there are a few reasons, but I'm just going to give you one. I think the, 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 the reason that's most significant is this. Even if Judas's motives were perfectly pure, even if he really did care about the poor, even if he had never stolen a single red cent from that money bag, Judas would still have been wrong to prioritize the poor over Jesus. It blows my mind. Even if his motives were pure, he would have been wrong to prioritize the poor over Jesus. Now, let me clarify. Clarifications are necessary here. I know that caring for the poor is, in a sense, itself an act of worship, right? We don't need to pit the two things against each other. But you know what I mean here when I talk about the, the, the competition between the poor and Jesus. The, the worship that we're talking about is explicit and direct. Right? You, can, you can tie your shoes to the glory of God, floss your teeth, go to the bathroom to the glory of God. Those can all be, in one sense, acts of worship. But what we're talking about here is a direct act of worship, explicitly so. Another clarification. The Bible is full of commands to love the poor. Love the poor, care for the poor, serve the poor, don't pervert justice for the poor, 
And by the way, hey, Paul, uh, we agree with you in your gospel. You're an apostle for sure. Go out and keep doing it, but don't forget the poor, right? So we know that Jesus is on team care for the poor. But what Jesus is doing here is significant. In this rationale, Jesus is doing something that should blow your mind. He is relativizing the importance of the poor in relation to himself. Triage is what we do when we make value judgments about priority and urgency, right? So the ER nurse tells the guy with a sprained ankle to take a seat. Sir, we'll be with you in a minute, which means 10 hours, right? Hope you brought something to keep you occupied. The lady comes in with puffy eyes and allergies, and the nurse goes, uh, go to CVS, buy some Benadryl, and just go home, right? A guy comes in with his femur sticking out of his thigh, and they rush him back. Blood's everywhere, right? That is triage. You have to prioritize that which is most and least urgent and everything in between. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus tells Judas, caring for the poor is good, Caring for the poor is necessary, but it is not more important, it is not more urgent than worshiping me right now. For two reasons. Reason number one, I will not be here much longer. That's the significance of verse one, six days before the Passover. That's why John includes that little detail in here. He wants us to know that Jesus says, it's important to worship me while you still have me in the flesh. The second reason is because of verse 8. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, the poor will always be here, but I won't be. This is incredible. Jesus says, listen, you can sell your stuff and give your money to the poor anytime you want. There's nothing stopping you. (coughs) The poor aren't going anywhere. So like, hey, listen, if you're here this morning and you're like, Sean, I just feel like I'm just so passionate to serve the poor. That's going to be my gospel ministry until Jesus calls me home. Man, have I got a good news for you. There's so much ministry for you to do, and you're never going to run out. As long as, there are, as long as we are here, there will be poor people, and there will be an abundance of opportunity for you to serve them. But Jesus says, as for me, I don't even have a week left to live. Worship me while I, God in the flesh, am standing here in your midst. Now, let's think a little bit more about how this applies to us today. First, consider what Jesus' words regarding the permanency of the poor mean for various utopian visions of poverty alleviation. The word utopia, it's, you know, it brings to mind like the perfect place, the perfect place. Interestingly, the original word means no place because it doesn't exist. Sometimes, listen, I've been there and, and there's a sense in which I don't want to lose all of this, but young, fired up, excited Christians, we go out lit up by the gospel and we're like, we're going to eradicate poverty. Let's go. Yeah, you're not. Jesus just says the poor are always going to be with us. It's just a, it's a fact of reality. 
What Christians need to be thinking if they want to be effective in fighting poverty is they need to think in realistic terms, terms set by Jesus. We need to be thinking in terms of poverty alleviation, not poverty elimination. If you're thinking in terms of poverty elimination, you're going to become disgruntled and disjointed and bristly and, and disaffected and angry and confused and bitter. And Should I keep going? I, I don't have a thesaurus. I'm running out of words. You're going to be all those things but you'll never feel fulfilled. But if you understand that the poor are just a part of our life here, and it's just one way that we can worship Jesus by caring for them, then you'll be able to do it with gusto and consistency and joy and healthy expectations. Now, the second way I I want us to see that this applies to us is, well, I want to show you. I want you to mark up your Bibles if you're a Bible marker. Some of you I know you would never ever, ever put a pen to your Bible. But I'm a Bible marker, okay? Like one day, I want, I want my girls to like receive my various Bibles, and I want them to see all the places where I was very obviously studying God's Word carefully. I want them to be able to literally see it on the pages. If you're using the Pew Bible, ah, go ahead, mark it up. It'll be good if anybody comes along and reads it. I want you to, I want you to notice the, the two words in verse 8, the two always, Right? Look at verse 8. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And then and if, if you underline those two, go ahead and circle the do not so that the, the, the contrast is clear in your mind. Okay, so he, here's your application. I, I want you to fill in these always for yourself. What in your life are you failing to triage appropriately in light of Jesus and His glory? What are you failing to prioritize in light of these two distinct always? I'll start by giving you an easy example from my life, and then we'll go a little deeper. As a pastor, I will always have more ministry to do. I know pastors only work one day a week, blah, blah, blah. Not in this church. I think part of the reason why some of you are here is because you know that your pastors work. We love you. We shepherd you. We get after it because we love you and because we love the Lord. Now, what that means is that we live with a kind of low-grade anxiety about more, more, more that could be done. There's always another commentary to consult. There's always another book to read. There's always another discipleship lunch. There's always another counseling session. There's always another elder to train. And the list goes on and on and on. But I will not always have my children in the home. I will not always have the little years of their lives. Man, just this morning I asked Patience to do something for me, and her face lit up. She was so excited to help her dad. I see it from her all the time. It's one of the reasons I love her. What, it's like, <laughs> it's one of the reasons I love her. And I just thought, man, that's not always going to be the case, right? Eventually, she, right, she's going to be a teenager, right? And I'm going to ask her to do something, and then she's not going to want to do it. And that's going to, that's going to stink. I have to enjoy this time that I have with them here and now. The, the not always over here has to, in some way, affect the always over here. Now let's dig a little deeper and see how this applies specifically to worship. Let's ask ourselves... 
What are the very good and important things like caring for the poor? What are the very good and important things that we can sometimes wrongly prioritize over worship of Jesus? This only works if you're willing to kind of help me out and do some of the math on your own, right? I'm going to throw out some basic ideas, and then you have to be willing to examine your own heart and be honest with what you find there. You know, at the end of the day, you're always going to have more good things to do in this life. You're always going to have more good things to do than there is time to do them, but you will not always have the opportunity to spend your one life, your one life for Jesus. You only have one life, and by the way, it's very, very short. Your life is a vapor. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. In Romans 12, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the language of worship from the Old Testament. A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, the language that Paul uses here is is interesting. He says, our bodies. We sacrifice our bodies. Now, Paul should not be understood literally here. He doesn't mean we go to the altar, lay ourselves down, you know. The bodies represent our temporal, finite existence. The days that the Lord has given us on the earth to know Him and worship Him in the flesh. The way that we worship God and glorify God is by giving Him all of ourselves in the flesh. All of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure, and yes, that may even include our bodies. We give it all to Him. And then Paul says something incredible. He says, this is pleasing to God. Man. Let's not be so reformed, so focused on the depravity that lives within us, on the power of the flesh, that we begin to think that it's not possible for us to please our God. It is. In the same way that the perfume poured out on Jesus from Mary, a sinner, was pleasing as a sacrifice of worship, your one life poured out to Jesus is pleasing to God. And so often we spend so much of our lives on things that just don't matter to God at all. As a Christian, our sort of motto should just be, God, I just want to do whatever makes you happy, right? I just want to do whatever is going to bring joy to you. You're my God. You're my Savior. You're my Lord. I just want to make you smile, King Jesus. And then we spend our time on a bunch of things that bring him no pleasure at all. Even worse, we spend time on things that grieve the Holy Spirit of our God. So here's my pointed, point blank, direct, you don't have to tell me the truth, Maybe meditate on this, talk about it with your spouse, consider it before the face of God, honestly, question for you. Are you making risky, radical, sacrificial worship a priority even over other good things? 
Or have you gotten your priorities mixed up? Is your triage all out of whack? You know, it was right here as I was working on the sermon, I thought about asking a, a really tough question. Here was my tough question, okay? You ready? <clears throat> Are you prioritizing care for the poor over worship? As I sat there and I looked at that, I thought, who am I talking to? You know? Who, who am I asking? The truth is, is that most of us are prioritizing things much more carnal than caring for the poor. I wish I could say that the greatest struggle for me and for you was that we just have this battle. We love the poor so much and we love Jesus so much and, oh, they're, they're duking it out in our heart and in our lives. I wish I could say that that was true. Instead, if we're being honest, our struggles are much more shallow. We prioritize our children's sports over worship. Parents, listen to me. And, and oh, you're sitting here thinking, oh, well, my kids actually aren't into sports. Oh, you've got a children's sports category. Don't worry. Even if they're not playing basketball or football, you've got some way, somehow, that you've put your children and their stuff in a place of preeminence over Jesus and his worship. I can almost guarantee it. If you want the best for your children's future, show them what it looks like to radically worship Jesus, to risk your life for the name of Jesus, to assume great sacrifice for the name of Jesus. Listen, in 20 years, even if your little Johnny makes it into the NFL, nobody's going to care about his football. But in a thousand years, little Johnny will look back and say, why did we go to football games on Sunday instead of going to the church to worship Jesus? You've got you to gotta zoom out and consider eternity. The truth of the matter is that we prioritize our free time over Jesus. Another weekend at the lake house when you could have been with the saints. Maybe you feel a little more refreshed, but what could have, what could have been done for your soul? to sing hymns to God, to go to God in prayer, to listen to the Word of God preached, to have the balm of God's Word applied to your dry and decaying heart. Listen, I love the lake, and if anybody wants to take me to the lake, let's do it. But don't invite me on Sunday. I'm not going to go. As nice as that water is, it is not anything compared to this, the living water of Jesus. I want to come back and hit on that prioritizing family thing one more time. And I want to be a little heavy-handed here because in our circles, we have our idols that we tend to not realize that we have. And as good conservative Christians, one of our idols that we can have is the idol of family. I know it. I feel it in my own life. I once pastored a family who didn't come to worship on Christmas Sunday because they wanted to spend time with their family. And in my heart, I was just thinking, no, you will always have your family. You can always spend time with them. But you don't 
always get to be with the body of Christ on Sunday. You don't always get to listen to the word. You don't always get to have people minister to you as they sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You don't always get to serve others in need as you come alongside them and spur them on to love and good works. And friends, listen, if you're here and your family ever tries to make you feel guilty about choosing Jesus in worship over choosing them, you should recognize that they are whispering in your ear like Judas. Some churches have a tradition of once or twice a year swapping out Sunday worship service for community service. And I really think that most of these churches that do this, they do it out of a place of sincere love for God and a sincere desire to serve others, unlike Judas. And yet, I think, I think that they're wrong to do that. I think that they're prioritizing the wrong things. I think their triage is out of whack. If I could sit down with the leadership of those churches, I would just point them to this text. Right? I would say, listen... You can serve your community anytime you want. You don't need to do it on a Sunday. You can serve them on Monday. You can serve them on Tuesday. You know where I'm going with this. You can serve them on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. But Sean, after work and I got to the gym and the kids soccer, oh, you could serve them on Saturday. Oh, I've got an idea. You're passionate about serving the community? Fantastic. Every Saturday can be your church's community service day. But Sunday is the Lord's day. (coughs) Sunday is the day that Jesus got up from the grave. Sunday is the day that Jesus went to the cross. No, that was Friday, but you get what I'm saying here. (laughs) Getting carried away. Sunday is the day that Jesus fixed everything. You can go paint a wall on a Tuesday. But what we're doing right now, the Lord has appointed that for his day. Now, I still have a little bit more to say about serving the poor. I I want us to know that only those who are willing to give everything to Jesus in risky, radical, sacrificial worship will be truly useful to the poor in the long run. I know the sermon's going long and we kind of just hit a fever pitch, right? I kind of was in my groove, right? Now we're kind of coming down. Uh, Don't lose me. I want to make sure we hear this. Only those who are willing to give everything to Jesus, first, only those who prioritize Jesus above all else, will actually be useful in the other good and important things that they are dedicating themselves to as an act of worship to Jesus. Remember, friends, you don't have to be a Christian to serve the poor. The world is full of people serving the poor. I mean, I could just pull up Google and, you know, I could find a hundred NGOs and nonprofits and so on and so forth, and they're all serving the poor of the world. But you do have to be a Christian to serve the poor like Christ. You don't have to be a Christian to serve the poor and meet their temporal bodily needs, but you do have to be a Christian to meet their eternal needs needs. Anybody can give a homeless person a piece of bread. Only you, Christian, can give them bread 
that lasts forever. There's a fantastic book that I have. I know we all have so many books to read, so no pressure from me. But if you want a copy of it, I have more in my office. It's called When Helping Hurts. And this book, it's really trying to help us see how very often those who have the most sincere desire to help the poor very often end up hurting them in the long run. So I'm going to give you three examples. One is from the book and the other two are from me. Example number one, a young entrepreneur goes over to Africa. He sees the tremendous poverty in this country that he visits. He's heartbroken. He's devastated. He wants to help. He's a a mover and a shaker and a go-getter. He comes back to America. He gets 50,000 brand new t-shirts, ships them over to Africa to this little country. He thinks that he's helped the poor there. When in reality, he has shut down the textile industry there which was the only thing maintaining an already very shaky economy. And so now that country has 50,000 t-shirts, but they are much, much poorer in the long run. Another example would be from our own country. Politicians in the 60s come along and implement certain uh, social welfare programs, thinking that they're going to help the most poor and marginalized in our society. A couple of decades later, it becomes obvious that in fact they have incentivized things that have only made the problems of poverty and marginalization worse in that community. Example three, a pastor calls for his church to divert all of the church's missions funds to a poverty relief organization because he says that Christians should serve the poor. All the missions funds, all the diaconal funds, all the benevolence funds, it's all just going to the poor. And in the end, there will be many more mouths fed but far fewer souls saved. And friends, many of those lost souls will be poor. And so they will suffer poverty and loss, angst and suffering, hunger pains and more here in this life, and then they will go to eternity and they will find no solace there. All because of poor triage. Those who prioritize the poor over Jesus will actually end up harming the poor by robbing them of what they need most, which is Jesus. Jesus wants you to know that if you prioritize the poor over him, you will never be of real service to the poor. It is precisely because Jesus loves the poor that he will not let you put them in first place. He is in first place. And then once you have him where he needs to be, then everything else will just flow like it's supposed to. And I know you're thinking, Sean, can't we do both? And I'm like, yes, we can, as long as we keep them in their proper place. There's another place in the Bible where you see something like this. It's in 1 Corinthians. In the church at Corinth, there was an issue about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are good They are gifts from the Spirit of God, a manifestation of the Spirit of God given to the church for the building up of the body of Christ. That is a very good thing. And yet the Corinthians had come to obsess over the spiritual gifts. They had put so much preeminence in their thinking on the gifts that it actually led them to abuse the gifts. And so Paul comes along and he teaches them a better triage. 
He comes along and in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I speak in tongues, and I know you guys, you love the gift of tongues. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, ooh, that's another good spiritual gift, the ability to prophesy God's word. If I can do that, and if I can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, uh, you have the gift of giving. It's a really important gift to be able to, to take risks, to radically sacrifice. If I can give it all up, and if I can deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then at the very end, he says, love never ends. Why does he say that? He says love never ends because he wants you to know that love is more important than spiritual gifts. And you would say, well, Sean, isn't spiritual gift, isn't that connected to love? You're missing his point. The point is, spiritual gifts are only temporary. But there's going to be a day where they're not needed. But love is going to go on forever. So prioritize loving one another more than spiritual gifts. And when you can prioritize this thing over that thing, instead of having them like this, then the spiritual gifts will be able to function like they're supposed to. Same thing is true with the other good and important things in our lives. The entailments of the gospel, loving our neighbors. It is only when we put love of neighbor rightly underneath love of God that we can actually love our neighbors well. Now in closing, I want to draw your attention to one thing in verse 3. I didn't address it in last week's sermon. And I might not have addressed it in this week's sermon until I read it again this morning. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure uh, nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now why is that comment in there? The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. There's some really deep theological answers, right? I can let you borrow some of my commentaries. Eh, the, the fragrance fills the room in the same way that the glory of God is going to fill the earth, and the room is the earth, you see. And, ah. Some of that may be right. I don't know. But what really blows my mind about this is that John was present there at that feast. And as he's writing his gospel, he's remembering that occasion. And he remembers the overwhelming presence of the scent of that perfume. Have you guys ever gotten a glimpse of that? Like a teenage boy gets in your car and he put on like 15 sprays of high karate, you know? And you're like, whew, all right, let's get to the skating rink. Roll these windows down, right? Or maybe uh, your waitress was out having a smoke break and she came back in and she went to take your order. And you're like, geez, you know, you smell like an ashtray. I, one time, uh, actually just last night, we spilled some vinegar because my wife is a freak and she puts vinegar with ketchup when she eats french fries from Five Guys. The vinegar smelt. I smelt vinegar for the rest of the night. The whole house smelled like vinegar. She took an entire, so, uh, uh, 11 ounces is basically what a Roman pound was, of ointment and just dumped it. 
Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there in that, in that room, in that house? If you're thinking about, well, my house, I wouldn't, you know, go to Trevor's house, see if you can smell it. No, it's going to be contained in one room. But this is an ancient Near Eastern house. It's like the size of like your master bedroom. That's what a house is in those days. An entire jar of perfume poured out in your bedroom. And as John is sitting here as an old man, decades later, writing this gospel, he can remember the smell, the overwhelming smell of their perfume. This actually happened. Mary was a real person. Judas was a real person. John wrote this because he was actually there in the room with our God in the flesh. Sometimes I, I, worry, I worry about this in my own heart, but I worry, about us, I worry about this for us as a church too. Sometimes I'm worried that we come here and we sing the songs and we say the prayers and we read the book and we listen to the sermons and then we go out and it's just, it's just information, you know? It's just facts about the Bible and now I know this story and now I better understand that part of doctrine. Friends, this actually happened. God actually came down in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and displayed his glory to us. He actually raised a man from the dead, which was really just the warm-up. It was just the prefiguring of him raising from the dead, which in a sense was also like a warm-up for him coming back one day and raising all of the dead. This actually happened. Mary actually beheld the glory of the resurrection power of Jesus and was moved to make this real, radical, risky, sacrificial act of worship. Do not leave here saying, I feel good about what I learned about how to worship God and then do nothing with what you've learned. Don't let your bank account be the same. Don't let your finances or your possessions be the same. Don't let your house be the same. Don't let your heart, your career be the same. If you can leave here and this doesn't affect something about the way that you live, I just don't know what we're doing. Judas was real. He betrayed Christ. He beheld the glory of Christ and turned away. He saw the resurrection power of Jesus and chose money. Money. He chose money over Jesus. God, help me not to be like Judas. Help me not to choose money over Jesus. What a terrible trade. Money is here today. It's gone tomorrow. It corrupts our heart. It doesn't really do anything for us other than give us a minimal amount of comfort in this tiny speck of life that we have. And then, then the real world comes into focus when we go to meet Jesus. And when that day comes, your money won't matter. The comfort you experience in this life won't matter. None of that will matter. On that day, the only thing that will matter is did you love Jesus? Did you repent of your sins? Did you trust in Jesus? Even though you were weak, even though you failed, even though you fumbled and stumbled all the way to heaven, 
and you felt so weak and so inadequate and so tired all the way home. It doesn't matter. Did you even a little bit with a grain of a mustard seed? Did you believe that God came to save you? If you do, then you will be with him. And the aroma of his glory will overwhelm you for eternity. And if you don't, the stench of the torment of those who have rejected Christ will be forever in your nostrils. The events in this book are as real as you as you sit here in this room today. The opportunity that Judas had to worship Jesus is as real as the opportunity that you have here sitting in this room today. Do not reject this God. Let's pray. Father, help us. What else can we say other than help us? You offer us everything. You're so kind. You're so loving. You're so gentle. You're so patient. You're so faithful. And even at our best, it feels like we're none of those things. We are so much like Judas, but because of your son, Jesus Christ, we can be more like Mary. So we pray that you'll help us this week by your spirit to live out the reality of your gospel for the glory of your name and for the good of all men, especially the elect. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.